Let's begin. Uh, welcome everyone to the United States Study Center webinar, Universal Voting, Can Australia's Experience Work in America? I'm very excited today to be exploring this difficult question with two highly distinguished experts and authors on this very topic, E.J. Dion Jr. and Miles Rappaport. My name is Victoria Cooper. I'm a research associate here at the United States Study Center, and I'll be moderating this discussion alongside my ever-wise colleague, non-resident senior fellow, Bruce Bolte. And before we begin today's proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney and the United States Study Centre stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. With that said, let's turn to the United States. The simple act of voting, who can vote, uh, how easy it is to vote, who counts the vote, who certifies the votes, and as of 2020, whether people even accept the legitimacy of the votes cast, these questions are at the very heart of the crisis of confidence in American democracy. And after studying the voting practices of dozens of countries, E.J. Dion Jr. and Miles Rappaport found Australia to be one of the most compelling and effective voting systems in the world. From across the Pacific, the Australian style of voting might even look radical or utopic, but as our guests wrote in their book 100% Democracy that was published earlier this year, Australia proves that our system of universal voting can work. As they ask in their book, if Americans are required to pay taxes and serve on juries, why then should they not uh, require every American to vote? Why do we accept less than 100% representation, less than 100% democracy? So let's get to know our authors and our guests. Uh, E.J. Dion Jr. is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post, and a university professor in the Foundations of Democracy and Culture at Georgetown University. A nationally known and respected commentator on politics, Dion appears on weekly national public radio and is a regular on MSNBC. He also appeared on NewsHour with Jim Lehrer and other PBS programs. And Miles Rappaport is a Senior Practice Fellow in American Democracy at the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Integration at Harvard Kennedy School. He formerly served in the Connecticut State Legislature and as Secretary of State. He also served as President of Demos and of Common Cause. And finally, Bruce Wolfe is a non-resident senior fellow at the United States Study Center. Bruce is a regular contributor on US politics across media platforms in Australia. And in recent years, Bruce has worked uh, both with the Democrats in Congress during Barack Obama's first term and on the staff of Prime Minister Julia Gillard. Uh, he also served as the former PM's chief of staff. And with those introductions out of the way, Bruce, I'm gonna to throw to you to kick us off with some questions. Thank you so much, Victoria, and we'll come back to you soon. Uh, EJ and Miles, it's just, we're so honored to have you with us this morning here in Australia. It's a great way to start a long weekend here in, in this country and uh, to have your wisdom in talking about democracy, something that uh, this country is following very closely as they watch the challenges in the United States and something this country celebrates as uh, it has its, ele its election cycle. And so I really want to start with that, uh, with you, EJ, and also Miles. Um, I just want to open by sharing, if you could share with us why you want to write this book at this time uh, and why you saw it as so important uh, to have the messages uh, understood and, and why you turned to Australia as sort of a centerpiece of the book. Um, well, thank you, Bruce. First, thank you for having us. Uh, we have been the equivalent, I think, of the Australian political chamber of commerce for the last year. <laughs> and we've gone all over the country. I think we've done about 50 events 
Uh, and we have spent a lot of time telling Americans how wonderful Australia is and how uh, great your political system is. And as you know, Bruce, for me, that comes from a very deep love for Australia. And so it's a real honor to be here. And we miss you here uh, in the States, Bruce. I still want you to come back and do one more run at government. And it's great to be with Victoria, who will explain to us Americans how our elections are going to turn out in six <laughs> weeks uh, before uh, we're done. You've got to inform us. One thing, by the way, uh, left off that lovely introduction is I have been doing ABC Morning Breakfast, uh, ABC Radio, yes. uh, for a long time. And it's one of the favorite things I do uh, because Australians know more about us sometimes than we know about ourselves. And it's just a really fun, both the people on the, on the ABC, but also people in your country engage with us um, in a really smart way. I guess they read you in the Sydney Morning Herald, Bruce, so it must be uh, that. Um, so we did this because we concluded, and Miles will talk about his own background here, um, doing voting rights and democracy work pretty much all his professional life. Um, I got to know the Australian system from visiting Australia a lot since uh, the mid-1990s, being very interested in Australian politics, uh, as Bruce knows, but maybe others don't, Kim Beasley is one of my oldest friends and I have followed his political career from the beginning. Um, and when I, I looked at what compulsory voting does, so what we call universal voting in our book, um, I realized it accomplishes things that we desperately want to accomplish in the United States. We have had endless wars throughout our history over inclusion and exclusion in our electorate. Um, and we've had real cycles of inclusion and exclusion. After the Civil War, uh, voting was expanded to Black Americans in the South, former slaves, and then it was shut down again. Um, and it took a hundred year struggle to open that up again. Um, it took a long time to get uh, rights for our indigenous people. Women didn't get the right to vote until 1920. And we thought after we passed the Voting Rights Act and some other laws that affected the indigenous that we got the job done. And lo and behold, we now are in a situation of reaction again, where you're having pushback. And what Miles and I both wanted to do is rather than have a series of narrow skirmishes we wanted to take the whole problem and say, let us solve this with one big idea. And that big idea is saying that everyone has the right to vote and everybody's voice should be heard. And I think people talk, we'll, we'll talk later about the American allergy to anything that has the word compulsion uh, in it. If you had as much trouble getting people to take a vaccine to save their lives. You can imagine this system might be a heavy lift for us. Um, but although we found far more um, interest than we might have expected uh, when we started. Um, but you know, we argue that the other beauty of the Australian system is it's much more a nudge than a shove or a hammer. Uh, and that people, when they focus on compulsion, just don't want to look at the fact that a lot of people do not feel invited into the system. And this system is at once 
a requirement, a civic duty, but it's also an invitation to everyone. The final thing I'll say is something I've been uh, saying a lot in the last year as we've talked about this, which is uh, American elections are like those fancy dinner parties with an A-list and a B-list and a C-list. Um, you know, in ours, you know, where the A-list are the people you really want and the B-list and the C-list are, if they don't want to come, you invite them. And, you know, with our system, the A-list are people who vote regularly. They get all the attention from politicians. The B-list are people who might be registered to vote, but don't vote that much. They don't get a lot of attention. And the C-list, the unregistered voters, don't get any attention at all. Um, we don't think that's democratic. We don't think that's how a democracy should work. And that's why the Australian model appeals to us so much. Uh, Miles, what would you like to add? Well, uh, first of all, I'll add my thanks to, uh, to both of you and to the, um, to the study center for having us today. It's a great opportunity. Uh, I'm not as familiar and haven't spent as much time in Australia as EJ has. So this is, a, this is actually a rare treat for me. So thank you. And I'll also say that uh, speaking of delights, it has been an absolute delight to work with EJ uh, on this book and on this issue. I have learned so much from him and uh, we had a great time writing it together and being on the road together. So we'll, we'll keep it up. But I came to this issue from a different perspective and actually EJ figures uh, significantly in my own story. But as if, if I look back on my career, starting with when I was in the Connecticut State Legislature and Secretary of the State of Connecticut, um, stretching through uh, my uh, term at Demos, we call it Demos, uh, Victoria, not Demos. But uh, um, you know, I realized that I have been working on voting rights issues for about forty years, and you know, I have worked on almost all of the issues which, in the American context, constitute what I would call the suite of pro-democracy reforms, from same-day voter registration and restoration of voting rights to people who have felony convictions to pre-registration of 15 and six, uh, 16 and 17 year olds, you know, to automatic voter registration, to early voting and mail-in voting. You know, there are about 10 or 12 uh, uh, policy reforms. Uh, in our book, we call them gateway reforms um, that have been part of part and parcel of the reform debate in the country. But what I realized after all of this time is that we have moved the needle a little bit with these reforms. Um, in 2018, the, we had what we call uh, a record turnout for midterm elections at 50.3%. And in 2020, despite the pandemic and despite all of the um, uh, conflict over what the rules were gonna be, uh, we had the highest turnout in a hundred years in, America, uh, in a presidential election, but that was 66.2%. So when you think about it, those are not particularly good figures, especially when they're the record that we've ever had and about the time that I was really thinking about how might we move the needle instead of incrementally in a big way, I read a paper that EJ had written uh, along with his Brookings colleague, uh, Bill Galston, which made the case using Australia as its model that the United States ought to adopt a form of mandatory participation, which is slightly different as we'll explain from mandatory voting in our, in our context. Uh, and I said, wow, this is really, really interesting. And so I beseeched EJ to create a working group with me to really study it. We did, we thought it worked. Uh, we had Kim Beasley as a guest, which was really, really a nice thing. Um, and then uh, we got invited to write the book uh, about it, which we've done. 
So I believe that this, what I have come to believe, and this is after a very long time of working on lots of different reforms, is that the Australian system offers the United States the best possible model for getting to universal or close to universal political participation. And I think that would have a whole host of um, benefits for the US political system, which as we will talk about, no doubt, uh, is in sore need of uh, reform and improvement. So I'm, I'm dedicated to doing this and uh, delighted to have EJ as a partner as we go through it. Uh, could I just, by the way, return Miles's favor? This has really uh, been fun for both of us. And I've loved working with Miles. And Miles is an inveterate organizer. And I always joke that uh, when Miles dies, which I hope is a long time from now and goes to heaven, um, the first thing he'll do is organize the angels into a union. Uh, and then we will face the theological problem of how do you collectively bargain with God? Uh, but Miles, the organizer, has actually set up an organization out of our book called the 100% Democracy Initiative, which is trying to get this enacted in states and cities around the United States. Um, it's worth noting it started in the states in Australia, too, before it went uh, national. So we're following your model even in our uh, efforts to get it adopted here. Uh, well, do you want to just take that further for a moment? I mean, we're going to leap ahead. So, uh, in the United States, as you've said to us, EJ, you know, you have the the compulsion word. That's sort of death for any idea. But and and I, you also talk about ranked voting, preferential voting in the book. We'll discuss that too. But what is the key to unlocking support for something like Australia's voting system in the United States? How do you see that possibly unfolding? Well, I want to say, first of all, that one of my favorite, where I'm talking, we're talking at a university here, and one of the joys of teaching are the great students you get to teach. And I think my favorite part of our book is an appendix where we wanted to show what a model bill would look like if you introduced it in a legislature. And there was a state senator named Will Haskell in Connecticut who introduced it into the Connecticut legislature. Will Haskell was my student at Georgetown uh, who came into my office at age 22 before he graduated and said, I'm running for the state Senate. And he won in 2018. Um, and uh, Will introduced it there. Um, it's been introduced in Massachusetts. Uh, it's been introduced in Congress. Miles can tell uh, that story. Um, uh, there, there are versions of it that are kicking around in California and possibly Washington state. So what we're finding is you know, in the first instance, there are actually legislators willing to carry this and begin the debate. And that's where you've got to start. The second thing I wanna say before I kick it over to my, the very active work Miles is engaged in um, is you could say that Miles and I are either the two most honest book writers you've ever met or two of the dumbest, because we have polling in the book showing that as of right now, most Americans don't support our idea. Uh, although uh, there are two things about the polling that uh, a number of things about the polling that I took heart in, um, you know, the raw numbers are only 26% of Americans support this when we describe it uh, fairly. Um, but you've got 48% strongly opposed, um, and another, I think it's uh, 12 or 16% uh, somewhat opposed. Uh, I look at those numbers fairly optimistically, which is to say, 
we start with 26% support for an idea that has never been advanced systematically um, in our country and that seems to rub against so many um, uh, you know, inclinations of Americans. Secondly, you know, from those numbers, you've got about half of Americans who are at least open to persuasion. So that's not a terrible place to start. Secondly, uh, in our polling, um, we found that 61% agreed with the underlying idea that voting is both a right and a duty. And that number was, the number was equal among Republicans and Democrats, which we also took uh, as helpful. A uh, last thing on the polling, and then I'll kick it over to Miles, is we use the polling to find out what kinds of objections people had to the idea. And we use the book in part, uh, we have a whole chapter of the book dedicated to answering some of the objections. Uh, and some we, we think we answer very directly, others are somewhat philosophical that we'd have to argue out uh, in the country. But Miles, why don't you talk about this great initiative you've uh, really gotten moving very quickly. <laughs> well, uh, thanks, EJ. And, uh, you know, the thing I want to say, uh, Bruce, in response to the point you made, which is that, you know, there is somehow an American uh, knee-jerk response to anything that, that smacks of compulsion. Um, I think that's a, an easy generalization, which I don't think is completely true. Uh, certainly, there is a hardcore of kind of strong libertarian uh, supporters for whom any compulsion, including paying taxes or getting vaccinated or, uh, you know, sending their children to school uh, is a problem. But one, we, but, you know, I feel very strongly that part of it is what it is that is in the culture and what it is that you get used to. And the analogy that we have used a lot, and I think is very strong, and I find it quite persuasive when I use it with people, is to serving on juries. Uh, in America for 100 years, it has been compulsory to serve on a jury if you're called. And why, why do we do that? We do that because we want the jury pool writ large you know, to reflect the population as a whole so that people can get the fairest trial possible. But that's an exact analogy or virtually exact in my mind to voting because we want, or we certainly should want that the decisions affecting the laws that we live under and the people who are making those laws to also be made by a fully reflective part of society. So, and the point, you know, people sort of scratch their head and say, yeah, I never thought of it that way. I mean, not everybody wants to serve on a jury, but nobody that I've heard has said, it's an, out, it's an outrageous violation of my civil liberties to ask me to serve on a jury. So we think that we can um, kind of, whatever, kind of blend this into the culture as we go along. And I wanna just pick up one last point that EJ made, which is, this has never, I, I was astonished when I read EJ's paper the first time, that something that has been successfully used in Australia for a hundred years, and by the way, in Belgium since 1892, so you weren't actually the first, um, you know, uh, and it's never been discussed. I have never in 40 years of working on this been in a discussion on this, and I think that's outrageous. So uh, it is my determination, and both of ours, to try to make sure that this gets into the bloodstream of American conversation. And what we're finding so far is that as we do that, and as we take the case and make the case using Australia as a model, which nobody thinks of as a totalitarian country either, um, that people are receptive to it. So that's the, that's the, that's the plan and we're, uh, and we're moving it forward. That's great. Uh, Victoria, over to you. 
Yeah, great. Some really interesting points there. I think one of the, the points I'd love to pick up on is you're talking about, um, Miles, you're talking about voter turnout and how we had record numbers of voter turnout in 2018. I think you said 50.3% uh, in the 2018 midterm elections and we're staring down midterm elections um, very shortly in about six weeks. Um, but I suppose my, my question is, um, you know, at the same time that we're seeing this exploding turnout, we're also seeing state legislatures pass um, voting reforms that make it more difficult to vote and that that seems to hold the two things in tension. Maybe Miles, I'll start with you. Why why is this occurring? Why are we seeing um, more turnout but then also voting become more difficult in the US at the same time? Well, since the, the 2020, the turnout in the 2020 elections should have been and was for about 35 seconds uh, a cause for real celebration. You know, that is that that many people turned out under adverse circumstances. But then, uh, you know, a lot of people realized that a high turnout election didn't necessarily benefit their particular partisan ends. And so we have had since then, and EJ described this very well, so I'll pass it over to him, kind of, you know, uh, kind of bifurcated into two countries almost when it comes to voting. And, you know, with half of the country believing in inclusion and understanding that there is a, you know, a, a growing uh, and welcome uh, diversity in in the United States, and that that ought to be we ought to have a fully inclusive democracy that accepts everyone. But uh, uh, another half, um, you know, the pick, not really half and half, uh, you know, are determined to roll back the uh, era to a period of you know, call it what it is, white minority rule, um, and that's a real problem. So that's a that those contending forces are going to be with us for a while, but. Uh, the song that I always like to sing to myself when we're talking about it this way is don't stop thinking about tomorrow because we have to go through this fight. But at the same time, I think both EJ and I feel like we want to put out a North Star of a reform that says we want everyone to participate and we're prepared to stand on that. I mean, the tragedy is that voting rights became a partisan issue in a way it was not when it first passed, partly because when it was first passed, the Democratic Party, which became the champion of civil rights, was also the party of Southern segregationists. It was a very peculiar coalition, the Democratic Party was. Uh, but that meant that the Voting Rights Act to pass needed a lot of support from Republicans. And there were a lot of Republicans, um, somebody who deserves mention, even though nobody remembers him, a guy called Bill McCullough from uh, Ohio, was really fought very hard for civil rights and voting rights. And people like Jacob Javits in New York, there were a lot of very progressive Republicans who cared about civil rights. Um, what's happened since is that, uh, you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson embraced civil rights, Barry Goldwater opposed the Civil Rights Act, and we had a kind of racial polarization in the country, in the South in particular, um, which had all sorts of not very good knockoff effects on the Republican Party especially, but on the country uh, generally. Um, and to, to the 2020 election, as Miles said, was a great um, achievement. Uh, the, the pandemic produced enormous innovation. Um, and we passed laws in Republican as well as Democratic states yeah. um, or changed practices in Republican as well as Democratic states to make it easier for people to vote. There was more mail voting, drop boxes all over the place. I voted, uh, I dropped my ballot in a drop box in front of my kids' high school. Um, they're out of high school now. 
um, named after Walt Whitman, the poet of American democracy. So I felt my when I dropped my ballot, I thought I was you know performing a poetic act. Um, but we did. There were those drop boxes all over the country. Um, you know, we made it easier for people to vote early, which meant that the lines at the polling places were shorter on election day. Um, and we did all these things and got this extraordinary uh, turnout. And as Miles also said, since then, we've split in two. 20, according to the Brennan Center for Justice, a great group, by the way, for people interested in any sort of information on voting and a lot of other issues, um, uh, found that has found that 25 states have actually further expanded access since the election, and 19 states have in one way or another restricted uh, access. So we are becoming two countries when it comes uh, to voting. And that unfortunately is because voting has become a deeply partisan issue. Democrats are for expanding access and not all Republicans, but a lot of Republicans in a lot of Republican states have restricted access. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, uh, just to make a quick point, we've been arguing insistently that a big electorate does not mean Republicans lose elections. Uh, and that we think your experience actually is very helpful for us in making this case. Everybody votes and the conservative side of politics has won some elections and the progressive side of politics has won other elections. Uh, and even in 2020, the high turnout in some states actually helped Republicans pick up some seats in Congress. So we, we are trying as best we can to bust up this partisan divide and to try to make the case to Republicans, you ought to be for this. I know some Republicans who are, partly because they want their party to become more moderate and they think that it will be harder to sustain a Trumpist party if, with universal voting. And uh, I think that's correct. And we're trying to get all those people to come out and say, yes, we are for this idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love to ask another question. I mean, you have made the point that Australia has compulsory voting, um, but also something we were talking about before the webinar began and something that a couple of the people in our uh, audience questions have picked up on is that in Australia, it's remarkably easy to vote. I know my American colleagues remind me uh, constantly about just how good I have it, that I've never had to, you know, stand in particularly long queues. It's on a Saturday, you know, the classic allure of a democracy sausage. Um, so, you know, we have, a, we have a good model and possibly a good culture to bring out that voter turnout. Um, but you make the distinction in your book, you don't call it mandatory voting, you call it uh, civic duty voting or mandatory participation. So I wonder why those choice of words, does that uh, touch on some something to do with the culture or you know, what, what would be the difference between mandatory participation versus mandatory voting? Miles, you wanna go first, go ahead. Sure, sure. Uh, I think there are two reasons for it. One, uh, you know, there is a kind of a messaging issue um, the guy, uh, you know, calling something compulsory voting is, uh, you know, makes it a harder sell, I think, for just the reasons, Bruce, that you were raising earlier, whereas universal voting, uh, I think is, uh, you know, is, is, a, is, is a more acceptable language, but it is also, but there's also true that there is a distinction, uh, and that is what is true for Australia, and we recommend to be true for the United States if, universal voting is adopted is that you don't have to vote for a candidate or a ballot uh, measure um, for or against. You can pass a blank ballot in. You can 
um, you know, write in somebody that you like. You can make uh, vicious comments about the political system on your ballot. You can do any of those things. And we go one step further, which is to recommend that um, that ballots in the United States should have a none of the above option, which is already the case in the state of Arizona. Uh, and it gets, you know, maybe one or one and a half percent of the vote each time. So it's not it's not a huge thing. But uh, there's also a constitutional piece to this, which is that the Supreme Court jurisprudence over the years has evolved, has uh, consistently held that you cannot compel speech. You cannot force anyone to say something that they do not believe. And you might be able to make a case that if you had to vote for a candidate or another candidate, whom you, both of whom you disliked, that might be construed as compelled speech. But if you have the opportunity to not do that and just participate, it's not compelled speech. And we think that this would, uh, up, you know, would, would stand uh, a constitutional challenge, which of course it would have if it were ever adopted. I don't know, EJ, why don't you add to that? Yeah, no, I, I think you covered it well. I, you know, universal is the goal and compulsion is the means. And we decided to describe the goal, number one. Uh, number two, um, we really want to underline to people that we are not requiring uh, people uh, to vote for anyone. You know, if somebody said, I got to vote for Wolpe or Dion, and my God, you can't make me do that until you put <laughs> Cooper on the ballot. Um, you know, we're not going to require anybody to vote for Wolpe or Dion if they don't want to. You can cast, um, I think you call it donkey voting. Is that right in Australia? Yeah. You know, you can cast a blank ballot and we add the none of the above option just to underscore that. And the court issue is important, the compelled uh, speech. The last thing we do in uh, bow toward, um, you know, uh, uh, libertarianism is complicated, but there are aspects of it that are admirable, but none of us wants to live under a you know, brutal dictatorship. Um, we would provide for a conscientious objection under our system the way we do in the draft. When we had a draft, a pacifist could apply for conscientious objector status and not be required to serve in the military or they could serve in the military unarmed. Um, and so if somebody really, really, really has a moral objection to voting, uh, under our system, we let them apply and get conscientious objector status. So we're really trying as much as we can to get all the benefits we can out of requiring everyone to participate and trying to create as many avenues for those reluctant to come with us on this to say, okay, um, you know, you guys understand at least how I feel about this and we're trying to create those avenues. So that's, um, you know, primarily why we don't say compulsory voting. That's great. Um, Bruce, do you, wanna, do you wanna ask some more questions? Yeah, I wanna, uh, let's drill down on preferential voting and in my preferential voting VJ, I always vote one EJ at every election. <laughs> Um, but uh, it's now showing up in the U.S. And I have no chance, so it quickly transfers. <laughs> so it's a safe vote. Thank you, though. <laughs> you're, you're in. You're in. You win. You win. Um, uh, it, it's now showing up across the United States. We have a congressional district in May. The New York City mayoral race uh, recently was uh, preferential voting, rank voting. And in Alaska, of course, where Sarah Palin was aced out because she could not get to 51%. And um, uh, so is there an outbreak of uh, ranked voting in the US and what are the politics around that? I've heard uh, some Republicans call it un-American, but how's it, how is it looking to you? And is it going to, will we see more of it? 
Well, we take some heart in the spread of preferential voting in the United States for the idea of universal voting, because what you're seeing is a willingness to take a look at the electoral system and change it and try to make it better and try to make it more representative. Um, and while our book is not about preference voting, we support, both of us support uh, preference voting. Um, you know, Miles likes to say that we want everyone to participate and we want them their ballots to say exactly what they want their ballots to say. Uh, and that's what preference voting does. Um, and uh, I don't think yet it has, Palin certainly complained about it in Alaska and some Republicans complained about it. I don't think the, there is yet a hard, hard, hard um, party opposition. Um, because if you are, for example, uh, a libertarian and want to vote for the libertarian party, but surely don't want those status Democrats to win the election, you can give your one to the libertarians and two to the Republicans. The same would is as happens in Australia, say with Greens and Democrats. Um, and so um, I, I think for now, it's helped Democrats a little more when the Republicans uh, nominated a very right-wing candidate because most of the rest of the preferences went to the more moderate candidate who in those races was a Democrat. Um, but we think it's a, um, you know, it's, it's a very good system. And I think uh, Australia has shown that at a moment when so many democratic systems around the world are in real trouble and are having difficulty accommodating protest and um, you know far right uh, you know certain far right movements and how do people deal with voter anger and frustration? Um, your system accommodates that pretty well. On the one hand. As you know uh, better than I, there's been a decline in the two-party vote in the two big parties. I think it's gone from uh, 98% uh, in the 1951 election in Australia down to somewhere around 69% the last I looked in your last election. A lot of people didn't want to vote for the coalition or for labor, but then they had the preference option. And so you did elect more Greens, you did get to elect the Teal Independents without completely wrecking your two-party system. That's a, I think that's a pretty good way to accommodate discontent uh, without completely destroying a particular electoral system. You know, the, let me just add something to that, which is that I think both universal voting and uh, ranked choice voting or preferen preferential voting uh, have something in common, which is extremely attractive. And I think it's very attractive even in the United States context now, which is that they are to some extent, I don't wanna oversell it, but they're to some extent depolarizing uh, reforms because you know, in the, in the, in the uh, case of preferential voting, it's obvious, which is you wanna get the second choice votes of other people. So you try not as a candidate to completely alienate everybody or ask for your voters to do bullet voting and don't vote for any of those other people because you want those second choice votes. Similarly, with universal voting, you know, um, in America right now, the biggest issue that we have, a big issue that we have is that campaigns are exercises in getting out your base and trying to depress the other party's base. Um, sometimes it's referred to as enrage to engage. Um, and, you know, we've listened to, uh, and EJ has probably heard it uh, far more times than I, uh, 
consultants say this is a turn. The 22, 2022 elections are turnout elections. We don't have to persuade people. We just get have to get our people to turn out one more person than the other people. And so what happens is that you know, this is frenetic digging to get out your base and to appeal to your base and to say all the things that your base wants, as opposed to trying to persuade everyone. But in a situation where everybody is voting and therefore everybody is listening as a party or as a candidate, you have to craft messages that will appeal to everybody. And I think that's a would be an extremely healthy development in the United States. And I think I'm, you know, I'm guessing that has had been one of the outcomes of it or one of the effects of it. Uh, of the two of the uh, universal voting coupled with preferential voting in Australia. Uh, yes, and uh, also the system, all the money in America spent, as you say, Miles, is getting the vote out. Here, the vote is out. So structurally, okay. it's much it's much cheaper. It's a much cheaper electoral process, and therefore a much cleaner electoral process than exists in the United States. And I think it, it is a real virtue of the Australian system. And the other thing is, it's you know, it's national. The Australian Election uh, Electoral Commission. Uh, it's the same standards everywhere, whereas you have 50 state standards, you know, uh, across America. And so there are real disparities. And, you know, if the heart of the issue of voting, if, if the heart of the issue of voting rights, as you defined it at the outset, EJ, that race is at the heart of the issue that we are grappling with politically, that issue is solved by um, this fantastic guardrail of, of the uh, electoral system that we have here, where it is every voter is equal. Uh, in Australia. And I think that is a tremendous advantage that the country has. And I really hope the United States, maybe by the example of, of, of states who adopt this, that it can turn, it, it can become more like that. I hope that's uh, a growing force in the country. We have uh, spent a lot of time in talking to Americans about this, praising your system of organizing elections. And um, the number of voting options people have, the, the fact that you don't have long lines. And we have to do a shout out to Democracy Sausages, which we've talked about a lot, uh, and sort of celebrations around the election. And we, in the book, we talk a lot about election administration. And I'd like Miles, since he was in charge of it in uh, uh, Connecticut. And, and the funny thing is that Miles um, denounces the very system that he ran because he was a partisan official elected as secretary of the state. By the way, Connecticut's the only state that has the in front of the state. Secretary of the state. Uh, amazing what you learn writing a book with someone. Um, but as uh, you know, the guy who ran elections elected on a partisan ticket, Miles is very critical of that system. And you can talk about that, Miles, because we would like a system much more like yours if we could get it at least if we could get state by state to run less uh, less partisan system. But Miles, go ahead. I, I wanna yeah. kick this over to the true expert on this. <laughs> no, we are asked a lot, by the way, about you know how can this, how, how wouldn't this be a nightmare to administer and all the extra turnout, et cetera. And I'm constantly talking about the Australian system as a national system with an elect, uh, you know, an elect Australian electoral commission that has the power to set standards, the funding to, to do what's necessary to be done, a nonpartisan administration, and the ability to make sure that the elections run smoothly. Contrasting that with the United States, which is completely balkanized, where all the states and even the counties within the states and even the towns within the counties can have variations in how they vote. We have no national election authority with any, we have the Election Assistance Commission at the federal level, which has no power whatsoever. 
Um, and we are, and we're the only place that, that has election uh, election officials that are elected in a partisan way. And we saw in 2020 the nightmarish potential consequences of a secretary of a, a partisan secretary of state called the Republican Secretary of the State of Georgia, you know, trying to do the do his job under incredible pressure to, to act in a partisan way. So I, despite the fact, as EJ said, that I was a partisan election official who tried to do a good job. Uh, I do think that we should convert to a, a national and a nonpartisan and a civil service way of administering and properly funded as well. Yes. Uh, by I the way, you? my favorite ruling ever put out by the Australian Electoral Commission, and I believe Bruce Leslie Russell, your wife, sent it to me, <laughs> was a ruling they put out, I think this year, that said, with the democracy sausage, the onion belongs on top. Uh, and I, I loved having a national body care enough to put out that ruling. <laughs> can, can I, Leslie, will send her great thanks to you, EJ, and a whole box of sausages, okay? <laughs> uh, but if, um, let me just tell you that if the prime minister who lost the election had called up the Australian, the head of the Australian Electoral Commission and said, uh, you know, we lost, the, let's, let's just say it hinged on one seat. And in Gilmore, here in New South Wales, there's about a 300 vote margin. Can you imagine what would happen if you called up the head of the Australian Electoral Commission and said, you know, I won that seat. You know, my rallies were bigger than the other guys. It's a 300. All I need, just find me 301 votes. You know what would have happened to him? He'd be in jail. And, and, and it is just inconceivable that there is such political interference in the counting and, and certification of the election here. And it's one of the great heroic things about Australian democracy. Well, so, and it's worth noting that the district attorney in uh, Atlanta agrees with you about jail, it appears. We're going to find out soon. Find I mean, out there is soon. a case about that very thing against uh, pres former President Trump. Okay. Um, we're going to, we, we want to talk about the midterms, but I, Victoria, I want to save that for the last five minutes, okay? But why don't we go for any further question for you and anything from the audience that you want? And at, at 55 to the after the hour, let's go to the midterms for a closing, closing round. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense to me. I mean, there's been some really good audience questions come through, but one that was pre-submitted that I'd love to ask, um, uh, it's from Sonia Thomas, and we've alluded a little bit to this in our discussion, but what are some of the constitutional issues around um, mandated voting in America? Are there any constitutional issues? What kind of barricades are we looking at legally? Well, there are a couple of things. It could theoretically be passed in Congress and Miles's congressman, Congressman John Larson, actually introduced the Civic Duty to Vote Act. I think that's the name, right, Miles? Yes. Uh, yes and it could could be done at the federal level, at least for federal elections, so for president, Senate, and Congress. Um, but more likely, it would need to be done at the state level. Um, and there are, according to with these wonderful lawyers who work with us on this project, there are about 13 states that give localities quite a bit of leeway to do something like this. Um, so that's the first thing. You know, if we're going to have any breakthroughs on this, it'll almost certainly be in states and cities, certain cities around the United States. Um, as Miles mentioned earlier, um, our lawyers did an extraordinary, um, you know, extraordinary research on the case law surrounding any sort of compulsion, obviously including jury duty and. Um, the main uh, objection 
that they found that, that would make it run crosswise to our constitution is if we required people actually to express a preference because that would be compelled speech. But there are all kinds of cases, constitutional cases that say that uh, conduct in the public interest can be required in certain instances. Now, given the current Supreme Court and the kinds of decisions they're making, could I guarantee you that this Supreme Court would say yes to our idea? No, I can't guarantee that. Uh, but if they were following precedent, um, we believe that the idea is constitutional within you know, the existing constitution does not require a constitutional amendment. Um, and um, I think we're on pretty sound ground on that. I'd love actually to bring together some of our lawyers to argue with anybody who wants to argue the other side of that, because I think they're pretty persuasive. One of them is working for Miles on the project. Miles, you got to set up Allegra in a debate, I think. All right, <laughs> she'll be ready. But listen, what, what, there's an interesting point on the flip side, which is one question that we do get often is, well, why don't we propose a, a, um, an incentive-based system rather than the Australian model of fining people? And, you know, uh, and Bruce, as you were saying, you know, for people who don't like compulsion, the idea of giving somebody a tax credit or giving them a lottery ticket as an incentive to vote, you know, is a lot easier of a sell. Um, but an interesting, so A, we're so impressed with the Australian model and we think looking at, at the 26 other or 25 other countries around the world that use some form of universal voting, the places where it works best and is most effective is when there is some light touch uh, enforcement to it, which is how we characterize what you all do. But there's an interesting thing in, in the Voting Rights Act of 1965, there's a prohibition on offering a voter anything of material value in exchange for their vote. Now, obviously that was put in there uh, thinking about candidates bribing voters um, you know, to vote for them, but it's never been tested. And some people might argue that that also would refer to a generalized government supported incentive system that that was somehow bribing people to vote. Now, I think that's a ridiculously extended interpretation, but we might actually have more difficulty making the case for an incentive-based system than, a, than a, uh, an enforcement-based system because of that provision of the Voting Rights Act. So it's sort of, sort of an interesting little codicil to that point. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking about the constitution, there's been a couple of um, comments coming in about, you know, where do we start with this? Like, where do you start with um, reforms and someone said, you know, uh, Tony Booth says, when will the Biden administration amend the constitution and enshrine an Australian electoral-like uh, commission in its structure? Um, someone else has asked, you know, what, what is the next step? Do we just implement mandatory voting or um, mandatory participation in some states and then hope it gets enough traction to convince other states to go? And so maybe, Miles, some of your work, um, you could comment on, you know, what's next? Where do you start in terms of convincing people? Yeah. I mean, EJ made reference to the fact that a, a federal bill has, in fact, been filed um, called the Civic Duty to Vote Act. And it's it's live, technically speaking, but we don't expect any kind of real activity at the federal level. I mean, you know, we have a Congress that is gridlocked and couldn't pass the John Lewis um, Voting Rights Advancement Act. So, you know, passing a universal voting law would be, you know, way out of that, out of the bounds. So we do, but we do think that states have the absolute right um, to do this for state state laws and congressional races. 
uh, for state races and congressional races. And our intention is to see if we can get maybe three or four states over the next year or two to, um, you know, to um, introduce legislation and have it debated and public hearings and face criticism, uh, et cetera. So that uh, our, our strategy is to get this idea into the mainstream of American public debate um, to get all of the organizations. And there is a good robust kind of democracy movement, I would call it in the, in the United States to get those organizations to adopt this as one of their platforms. I wanna come back to the idea of gateway in a second. Um, but then the third uh, prong of our strategy is to get some states or maybe a few municipalities that have the ability to do so, to adopt it, become the early adopters, and then hopefully it would spread from there. And that, by the way, that's also an analogy to what has happened with preferential voting, you know, which was at first was adopted in a few cities, and now it's been adopted by Maine and Alaska and lots of cities. And uh, interestingly enough, EJ, there are 25 cities in Utah that have adopted ranked choice voting. So oh. we see that as a, as a good sign of the possibility of getting a, a, a Republican state to think about creative election reform. But the direct answer is, our, our goal, and we're determined to move it, is to get some legislation introduced, if not adopted, in the 2023 legislative sessions after the midterms. And just parenthetically, and this is not just pandering to this nice audience out there, it really helps us that Australia is one of the most popular countries in the world in the United States. Yeah. Uh, Americans like Australians, they like Australia, they can relate to Australia. And so when we say you guys have been using this system for a hundred years, it's not a bad proof of concept uh, for Americans. And uh, so I, I love to mention Australia as often as I can. Yeah. You know, EJ, there was compulsory voting in the uh, eastern provinces of Ukraine, right? And I don't think it's a very popular idea. Well, well that was not uh, that was not compulsory voting. That was um, uh, that was compulsory choice. Uh, you know, a compulsory choice. You had no no choice whatsoever. It, it's funny when we were doing our report. Uh, we listed the countries and somebody on a chart had listed North Korea. And I called Miles and I said, no, 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 no. We got to knock North Korea out of this list. So we emphasize that we are only referencing genuinely democratic countries, uh, free countries uh, that have this system. <laughs> um, another, another question that's come through is that um, in the Anglosphere, there's uh, uh, some of the European countries, uh, they have a lot of minor parties. And uh, I think this person has referenced Italy or Denmark, like Borgen, which I'm assuming is the, the TV show there. Um, but with having to wrangle around these um, minor parties, is there a fear amongst Americans that a change to their electoral system might lead to even more instability or, um, yeah, might upend the kind of order and stability they have at the moment? At this moment, uh, I think we're, uh, we've got an awful lot of instability as it is after January 6th. Um, secondly, um, there are a lot of Americans who would like more than two parties. Uh, you know, what, what it, um, structurally our system has not accommodated third parties very well. Um, at certain moments in history, they've arisen, they've gotten some strength. Um, but I don't think Americans would worry if a system of um, 
of um, uh, preferential voting would create third parties. And you do have in states that allow fusion politics or you know, where a third party can endorse a major party if it wants. There's a party called the Working Families Party that started in New York, which has a fusion system um, and has had a multi-party system you know, often in support of the two main parties. Um, I don't think that's a barrier to Americans. So I, I, I think we have made the case that this would actually introduce stability into the system because everyone could have confidence that everyone was invited and participating in the system. Um, and we also call for reforming the way we organize our elections so people can have more confidence in how elections are organized. Yeah, I think the fault line in American politics now is not around the, the possibility of minor parties. That's not that much of a discussion. The fault line is clearly around whether you want to expand participation and have a fully inclusive democracy um, or not. And that fault line generally is around race. Um, you know, we are having a, a debate about whether the, the American political system wants to go back to the pre-Civil War days uh, or whether we're going to go forward. And so EJ and I are uh, determined to try to help the forward-looking side of that, uh, of that divide. Mm. Uh, well, with that, Bruce, I think it's time, six weeks away, time to talk about the midterms. So we want to talk about the midterms. Um, uh, EJ, let me start with you. It's, uh, it's a very dynamic situation. It seems to be very fluid. Uh, the president came back, certainly Biden came back during the summer. In the uh, in the wake of the abortion decision, the repeal of Roe by the Supreme by the Trump Supreme Court, um, he was very successful in passing legislation, uh, and and uh, and the issue and Trump, of course, in the future of democracy, it was really energizing people. The Republicans are pushing all the buttons that they know best on inflation, gas prices, the economy, immigration, crime, and then pushing culture buttons on uh, what's taught in the schools, transgender rights, and then race. So how do you see it? Uh, we know historically that the party in the first midterms, the party that is that occupies the White House loses an average of 26 seats or so in the House and, uh, and the tide runs, it becomes a referendum on the president, tide runs against uh, for this year, the Democratic Party. But nevertheless, there's been, it seems to have narrowed quite considerably based on from what it was six months ago. How do you see it? What can we expect in the House and the Senate? So we have gone through, and Bruce, you and I have gone back and forth on, on uh, you know, in emails about this. Um, you know, uh, three months ago or four months ago, the overwhelming consensus, whether justified or not, was this was going to be a Republican wave election. Biden was unpopular. Inflation was high. Gas prices were very high. Um, and uh, that was that. It was going to be a typical midterm and possibly a Republican wave. Um, that changed in the summertime, as you said, not only because Biden got some of his program through, not only because gas prices have started to come down, um, but also because of the Supreme Court's decision on, uh, on Roe v. Wade, which um, reversed making abortion legal in the whole country. Um, that created a backlash that I think was predictable, but people didn't expect anyway, um, that really put the Supreme Court on the ballot and not, and not just the House and the presidency. Um, so the combination of better news 
Biden getting some of his program through and the abortion decision really shook up the race. It, it produced a kind of democratic euphoria. I think what you're seeing now in the third phase is a bit of a reaction to the democratic euphoria uh, saying, wait a minute, it's not an inevitable democratic victory anymore. Uh, the polls in some races have tightened. Um, uh, the way I see it is that the House structurally is gonna be very hard for the Democrats to hold. Um, it, it, it won't take a hurricane. It won't take even a mild breeze, just sort of a, uh, I, I don't know what is less than a mild breeze. They only need, what, five seats to take yeah, the majority. Yeah. Um, and because of the way the lines got drawn by, you know, we have, again, partisan drawing of district lines, which is another problem in many of our states, um, that puts Democrats at a slight disadvantage. Um, and Democrats also need a bigger share of the national vote to win the House because they win certain urban areas in particular by overwhelming margins. So they need some extra votes uh, in other districts. So I still think the House is a real reach for uh, the Democrats at this moment. Um, and, you know, I, I think if you ask the typical tout at the moment, they would give the Republicans plus 10, plus 15, something like that. Um, I still think they have a shot, but I think it's tough. Um, the Senate seems much more promising. Some of the Senate races have closed up a little bit. Democrats had some big leads. Um, but the, the Republicans, as the Republican leader Mitch McConnell acknowledged, um, have some you know, dicey candidates. Um, you know, it's rare that a Republican leader would say, gee, you know, we'd have a better chance with better candidates, but that's effectively uh, what he said. Um, and so I think the Democrats have a real chance of holding the Senate. But I think so many of these races are going to be close. I think the line between Democrats picking up three seats and Republicans taking control could end up being very, very thin on election night. Um, and you got to remember in the Electoral College in the last election, Biden won um, by 7 million votes nationwide. But it would only have taken a flip of 32,000 votes to move the states and the one congressional district Trump's way to give him a majority in the Electoral College. Uh, Miles and I are for abolishing the Electoral College as well, but that's for another fight and another <laughs> night. <laughs> Miles? Go ahead, Miles. Um, you know, I think EJ is one of the most, uh, uh, you know, accurate and, uh, and acute observers of the uh, of the scene. So I certainly agree with what he has characterized. The one thing I'll add that I think is an interesting dynamic is that I do think that there is some interesting underlying currents within the Republican Party. Um, you know, it has been completely dominated by Donald Trump and the MAGA faction, the Make America Great faction. Um, and that has produced some really bad candidates and some frightening politics that I think are alienating a number of Republican voters. Um, you know, and, and so in some of these races where the, you would have expected the Republicans to be able to gain ground, uh, it's unlikely that they're gonna do that. And to what extent, you know, there is a real shift within the Republican party. Um, I think you'll mainly see it between 2022 and 2024, but I think the rumblings uh, are there. 
um, even now. Oh, I agree. Just with one, one quick thing I want to say, if I could. Um, if the Democrats are to have a chance to take the House, I think so much will depend on turnout among younger voters, under 45, under 30. Um, and that's where passing something on climate, uh, I think, could really make a difference in this election, plus backlash on the abortion issue. Um, you know, it looked at the beginning of the year like uh, that young voters were really going to stay home. We're just not vote Republican, but just said, why did we elect Biden in the first place? I think that has changed in an important way. And if there is a big surprise, I think it'll be because of young voters. Yes, um, we'll close yeah. that. Just one brief comment, and then we'll close uh, with Victoria. I agree with you, Miles. I think uh, the, this election will determine 2024 to a large extent in this way. And I think the Senate is just so important. If the Democrats take the Senate, hold the Senate, that means they will have defeated Trump extremist candidates. If the Republicans win the Senate, they will have won it with Trump extremist candidates. And I think that defines the 2024 presidential election as well. Trump lost the House in 2018, lost the White House in 2020, lost the Senate in January 2021. And if he loses the Senate, if the Republicans lose the Senate again in November 2022, well, why the hell do you stay with Trump? Because he keeps losing. And I think that is a really important issue uh, as far as outlook is concerned. 100%. That's very smart. Yeah, I agree with yeah. that. Victoria, over to you. To, to yeah, thank you down. very much to AJ and to Miles and to Bruce for joining us today. Uh, that was a jam-packed discussion, so much to take in and really timely, just, uh, as I said, six weeks ahead of the midterms. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll uh, leave our meeting there. Be sure to follow uh, the rest of USC content on social media to see uh, all our future events and subscribe to our newsletter, The 46, for more of uh, the United States Study Centre content. But for now, thank you very much to our panellists and um, have a good day, everyone.